Welcome to the Truth to Power podcast from Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. These recordings were originally streamed as live webinars where we brought together key people from across the church and society to discuss significant contemporary issues. In this episode, we explore how Brexit, one of the most important decisions taken by the British electorate in over 40 years, was underpinned by privilege and prejudice. The original webinar was hosted in partnership with the Baptist Union of Great Britain. Good evening and welcome to this one hour webinar titled Power, Privilege and Pandemic, the Toxic Case of Brexit. This event is hosted by Churches Together in Britain and Ireland and the Baptist Union of Great Britain. I'm sure you will have noted by now that it is exactly four years to the date that we heard the result of the referendum. My name is the Reverend Dr. Rosemary Ballett and I'm the Archdeacon of Croydon in the Diocese of Southwark. With us this evening is Professor Anthony Reddy, Director of the Oxford Centre for Religion and Culture. The format tonight will involve a very brief introduction from me, of which this is a part, followed by Professor Reddy speaking for around 20 minutes on the given subject, and then finally a question and answer for the remainder of our hour together. I have to let you know that there has been unprecedented interest in the subject of tonight's webinar, and this session is being watched on Zoom and live streamed via Facebook. With regard to the question and answer, while Professor Reddy is talking, please do formulate and send in your questions via the chat or the question and answer option on Zoom and Facebook. We'll do our best to get Professor Reddy to answer as many questions as feasible in the time we have and in view of the numbers registered for this webinar. Finally, this is the first in a series of webinars that Churches Together in Britain and Ireland and the Baptist Union of Great Britain will be hosting, focusing on racial justice in Britain. On the 7th of July, Professor Robert Beckford will be leading our webinar on the hostile environment. Professor Reddy, I welcome you. You now have up to 20 minutes to give your presentation. Thank you very much. Uh, it's uh, a pleasure to be here to um, um, well, it's a pleasure to be here to share with you, and I'm gratified that so many people have decided to tune in to hear what I have to say and to engage in conversation. So the first thing I have to say is that this talk is not about the merits of whether Britain should be in the European Union or not. That was settled in the referendum and subsequently confirmed in the most recent general election. And as our host has said, today is the fourth anniversary of that referendum. Rather, this talk, the central argument is that what underpinned the whole Brexit phenomena was an unresolved set of religious and theological ideas that have helped to shape our national identity. Essential to the development of the populist thrust of British, and really, I really mean more specifically, English nationalism is a coming together of religion and economic and political expansion abroad, namely the, the link between Christianity and empire. 
I'm on Twitter, and my most popular tweet, I'm told, is this one. Brexit is the shingles. Brexit is the shingles to the chicken pox of empire. One cannot understand the broader development of the Brexit phenomena within the context of Britain, and one is not aware of the creation of empire and the process of colonialism beyond the shores of Britain. So, in my assessment of the nature of Brexit and why I'm describing it as being toxic, is because it, it commences with an assessment of our colonial history, in which Christianity in Britain is deeply located in the construction of black bodies in faraway places from our British shores. Namely, it's the relationship between empire and colonialism. In many respects, this remains the unacknowledged elephant in the room in much of our social, cultural and political discourse in the UK. Aris Sugatharaja, uh, who's often known to his friends as Sugi, was the former, he was a former professor of post-colonial biblical hermeneutics at the University of Birmingham. And a number of years ago, he noted that there was a deep relationship between British Christianity in general and the Church of England in particular and empire. And that these two were, these two had a collusive, occlusive relationship over a number of years. For both the Christian faith and imperialism and the, and the regimes that come out of this, that they are all based upon the basic premise of the superiority of those who are colonizing other countries. And I have a quote from Sugatharaja and he says, and I quote, empires are basically about technically and military advantaged superior races ruling over inferior and backward peoples. When imperial powers invade, the conquered are not permitted to be equal to the invaders. This was true of all empires from Roman to British to American. The basic assumption is superiority and that superiority is never questioned in their writings." End of quote. So the superiority of Britain is built upon a bedrock of Christian-inspired notions of exceptionalism in which God has set apart the British, particularly the English, to occupy a special place in the economy of God's kingdom. And one can see this in the rhetoric of Britain's greatest writer, William Shakespeare, who in his play, in, in his play Richard II, written possibly 1595-96, a few years after the Spanish Armada of 1588, states in unambiguous terms the import of the English when thinking in terms of their sense of exceptionalism. And Shakespeare writes this. Now, I have to apologize at this point that I'm no thespian, so obviously this would sound better if it, if it would have been spoken by the likes of, of Laurence Olivier or Kenneth Branagh. But Shakespeare says, this royal throne of kings, this sceptred isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, this demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against the infection and the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea, which serves it in the office of a wall or a moat, defensive to a house against the envy of less happier lands, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England. 
if one thinks back historically to when Shakespeare was writing this, he's writing this a few years after which Britain, an island nation, is being pitted against a foreign continental power that is looking to impose itself upon them and looking to come in and to invade and to take away British liberty and independence. It's not a stretch, therefore, to see the parallels that were often drawn upon by Brexit in terms of Britain as an island nation against a continent that was looking to impose things upon us. This outworking of this sense of exceptionalism was the desire to export the superiority of the British across the world. Empire and colonialism found much of its intellectual underscoring on the basis of white Eurocentric supremacy, which marked the clear binary between notions of civilised and acceptable over against uncivilised and backward. Still prizes, therefore, for guessing on which side of the divide black people found themselves. So the roots of Brexit lie in, the, in this growth of English nationalism, which sees us, and obviously I don't mean me, I mean white British people, particularly white English, different from them. And this begins, as I'd said, during the reign of Elizabeth I. The rise of English nationalism, therefore, is based upon notions on being different and better than others. Think back again to the rhetoric around Brexit. I still remember having a conversation with someone local, uh, a local friend of mine who was a leaver. And he was convinced that we were going to get a special deal because I said, after all, in the end, like we're British. We're British. They should give us a special deal because we're different and we're special and we're better than them. End of quote, he said. So the rise of English nationalism is very much based upon notions of difference. And Clear and part of that is what I'm calling a subterranean, meaning an underground theology of election, in which God identifies with the British, particularly the English, and a central part of that identification is whiteness linked to Englishness that then becomes a framework for understanding notions of acceptability. This theological underpinning of English nationalism feeds into a sense of privilege which has been fashioned by ideas of empire and the Church of England and conservative politics. So those are the three stools, I would say, that helps to define Brexit. It's empire, it's this sense of having the largest empire the world has ever seen at its peak, Britain owned or governed 24% of the world. So all those bits in pink that used to be on those old maps and globes. And, and it was literally true that the sun never set on the British Empire. So if you went the furthest east, which would be Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific, going right across to the furthest west, which would be Canada, and all points between in pink, the sun never set on the British Empire. And, and so empire gives Britain this sense of exceptionalism, this sense of being special, this sense of manifest destiny. And the three, and the three, and the three legs of that stool, of the Brexit stool, I'm saying, is empire, it's conservative politics, and it's the Church of England. Therefore, it's no wonder, and I have to remind us, that, that the trigger for the referendum emerged from the discontent of English nationalism from within the Eurosceptic wing of the Church, of the, of the Conservative Party, sorry. And it's also no surprise then that amongst the Christian community, 
Anglicans in the Church of England voted, were more likely to vote Leave than any other expression of Christianity in Britain. So Brexit, the Brexit vote, demonstrated a barely concealed sense of exceptionalism and a sense of entitlement of predominantly white English people. And the clear xenophobia underpinning the Leave campaign actually, actually was a reminder that for many of us, true Britishness equals whiteness, and that those who are deemed the other, be they migrants living in Britain or foreigners from Europe who are still white, are distinctly less deserving in the eyes of many white British people. It can be argued that the romantic push for the nostalgia of the past, when Britain, as I said, had the biggest empire the world has ever seen, is based upon the intrinsic value of British seeing themselves as superior to others. And this often gets played out in groups such as Britain First, or those on the political right who want to make Britain great again. To quote the black British social commentator Gary Young, two quotes from Gary Young. First he says, not everyone or even most people who voted Leave were driven by racism. But the Leave campaign imbued races with a confidence they have not enjoyed for many decades and poured arsenic into the water supply of our national conversation. End of quote. Um, his other quote was simply this. Quote again from Gary Young, he says, not all people who voted for Brexit were racist, but all racists definitely voted for Brexit. End of quote. So that then brings us then to the question of the toxicity of the hostile climate and immigration, which I won't go into too much because like we have a future webinar based on that, but it has to be clear that that, the what helps to frame that is Brexit itself. If you have a rhetoric of white entitlement that pits itself against blaming immigrants and minorities for the social ills that plague the country, it's no stretch then that it's not stressing that what you then have is a wider context in which you see a rise in racist attacks and a rise in xenophobia and a rise in Islamophobia. And those are, those are demonstrably shown to be true in terms of, of record of, of hate attacks, sorry, post-Brexit. So it's my contention that the vote for Brexit was very much based upon a presumption of white normality and that the beliefs and the belief that the needs of poor disenfranchised white people would be better served if the numbers of poor minority ethnic people and others from outside the UK were reduced. That so many poor white people believe such propaganda is explained in part by the presumption that whiteness remains a site for privilege notions of belonging and, and is this sense of belonging that is embedded in models of superiority and entitlement that as I said they come from empire. In our current era I believe that Britain must purge itself of the noxious fumes of imperial grandeur that still continue to assault our sought our sense of contemporary Britain. And the church is important in this, and the church must recover its prophetic stance as a critical voice that rejects all forms of populism, particularly white English nationalism. 
John Holm, my doctoral supervisor at Birmingham University, is one of the few white British theologians who has wrestled critically with the notions of empire and colonialism and how that has impacted upon the role of the church and its mission in, in, in its collusion with white supremacy. The white English nationalism that underpinned Brexit and made it more than just a transparent vote about being in and out of the EU, this has its roots in empire. John Hall's perceptive analysis is on the ongoing tensions, between, ongoing tensions sorry, between a prophetic church with its roots in the prophets, in the prophets of the Hebrew scripture and the imperial friendly church that colludes with and rather than opposes forms of white English nationalism that is underpinned by unreconstructed theology of empire. So I want to quote John Hull at this point, and Hull says, and I quote, the theology of empire has outlived the empire. The empire has gone, but the theology lingers on. Much of the modern church is like the Israelites going into exile with a royal kingdom theology. Faith has become a remnant far from the glories of its greatest achievements, end of quote. But Hull also points to a constant flourishing of a theology of resistance. At its best, what the church has been is a form of resistance to an imperial theology that underpins notions of white supremacy and, and notions of manifest destiny of the British. And Hull points to three directions of this. He's, he firstly points to the Methodist movement. I'm a Methodist. Well, kind of Methodist, sort of Methodist. Okay, maybe not a Methodist much these days. But under John Wesley, who was one of the few church leaders in the 18th century to consistently oppose slavery, the early Methodist movement was a sign of resistance to a form of imperial theology. Alongside that, there's the Anglican social theology that helped to give rise to a form of Christian socialism that again was a critique of the existing social order in which there was a privileged assumption around basis of class, but particularly linked to notions of white exceptionalism and manifest destiny. And then of course, more recently, we've had the contextual theology of liberation, which black liberation theology is an example that became very much part and parcel of our theological lexicon in the second part of the 20th century. So in the last few minutes, here's a challenge. So what do we do now? Where do we go next? It se seems to me that the major ethical and moral question for me has been the underlying issues and concerns that have arisen as a result of the referendum vote. So as I said, this is not about whether we should be in Europe or not. But what it is about is the rise and the normalization of racism and hate speech in a way that has not been this common and this acceptable actually since the days of Enoch Powell and his Rivers of Blood speech in 1968. And it's worth remembering that Enoch Powell was sat from the, was sat from the shadow cabinet by Edward Heath the next day. And in, in our present context, we have a prime minister who can make racist comments and still not apologize, and that has not affected his popularity. That is an example of how racism and white exceptionalism has now become so normal that our dial has moved to the right, and what used to be unacceptable is now perceived as being normal. So, so the major 
theological and ethical challenge for the church post-EU is how can the church be in solidarity with those on the margins, particularly black and minority ethnic people and vulnerable migrants and asylum seekers and refugees? Given that Brexit has emboldened groups on the political right, like Britain First and the English Defence League, the sharp challenge is where is the church leadership that will face down white English nationalism? This talk is a provocative challenge to confront the rising tide of xenophobia and the paucity of any prophetic statements from most of our church leaders in the UK against the impact of white supremacy and racism that's come on the back of Brexit. In a sense, I can see how it's proved difficult for our church leaders to comment because the truth is the church is caught up in the very dynamics of the things that helped to give rise to Brexit in the first place. That of course, for the most part, our churches are operating against declining numbers where our heyday was in the past during the very era of empire and colonialism that I'm, that I'm asking the church to now critique and challenge. A fundamental reason why the church should be on the side of those on the margins is because the church has been one of the great beneficiaries of, my, of immigration. That actually, in terms of particularly immigration of black people from the Windrush generation, the three people who will benefit the most have been the National Health Service, London Transport and the church. Where would Christianity be in Britain were it not for the presence of black people? And yet, in the face of a hostile climate against immigration. That I said, I won't speak too much of because that will be uh, dealt with in a future week. There was for a long time a palpable silence. So in summing up, Brexit, I believe, is the coming together of white privilege and entitlement alongside notions of election that are derived from a deep-seated theology of exceptionalism that is buttressed and exacerbated by the trials of empire. And Christianity and British churches have colluded in that because they were part of that construction that, sent, that enabled Britain to feel like it was great. And Brexit really was, that to quote the language of Paul Gilroy, an exercise in post-colonial melancholy. It was an exercise in wanting to go back in time to a time when Britain felt itself to be not just distinct from Europe, but a country that, that believed itself to be great, that was underpinned by a notion of manifest destiny. So, in our present era, as I speak, the, the, the crisis that faces is, is one that is linked to the ethics of Christian practice. The church and the followers of Jesus Christ have to exercise a faith that is a challenge to notions of white normality. Most British churches supported the British Empire and the growth of colonialism. And the recent, and, and the recent COVID-19 pandemic has revealed the systemic disparities in British society and across the world. COVID-19 came on the back of post-Brexit paralysis, where we have indeed witnessed a rise in xenophobia, racism and anti-Semitism. We need a prophetic denunciation of white exceptionalism and the notion that non-white people should be scapegoated in our anti-immigration era. We need a prophetic theology that will challenge and overcome 
the toxicness of white exceptionalism. That has been the platform that has led to the fact that for so long black lives have not mattered. We need a change and the change needs to start now and the church needs to be at the forefront of that change as we challenge the toxic nature of Brexit. That is not about being in or out of Europe, but unleashing a floodgate of racism and white supremacy that has stalked us for too long. Thank you. Well, thank you, Professor Reddy. You have spoken powerfully on the tropes of power, privilege, and the pandemic as they're attenuated by racism and racial inequality. I just want to start off the questions by asking you if you think that these three tropes are in any way also attenuated by class. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I think one of the tragedies of Brexit was the way in which poor white working class people were sold a lie. And the lie was this, it was that somehow their poverty and their sense of marginalization was somehow like the fault of the fault of immigrants. And somehow if we somehow have less immigrants, then they themselves will feel more connected to Britain and their economic status will be improved. It is a lie that essentially, if you look historically at this manifestation of, of empire, it did not enrich poor white people either. They themselves were also victims of empire, but I think their whiteness, their whiteness has allowed them to be fooled. So they feel that somehow rich white men like Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage, private school educated, privileged individuals at the apex of British society, they were fooled into believing that their whiteness gave them more in common with them than it did with poor people from other parts of the world who live alongside them in underfunded schools, in bad housing and in, in poor areas of the country. And that is just a form of false consciousness. They were fooled. But I, I have to say that, that like you can't fool someone if deep down they don't want to be fooled. Okay, thank you for that answer. I'm going to continue on that theme and we have a question which asks, is race really the issue? What about the 30 years of Daily Mail propaganda and the systemic injustices visited upon the poor, the white poor by the rich in power? Well, that is, um, that's a very good question. And that I think is linked to my previous answer that I think it's not entirely about race. I think race and class have always been linked. Race and class have always been intimately uh, linked. And so I don't doubt that, that the propaganda of the Daily Mail in seeking to, to make white British people feel that somehow that they're the worst victims. Yes, they're victims, but like I said, that you can't fool people who don't, uh, you can't fool people who deep down don't want to be fooled or don't buy into some of the myths that have been propagated against them. And I think sadly, that due to the false consciousness of whiteness, it has still allowed many poor white people to see or to feel that rich people who never had their best interests at heart, never had the best interests at heart. If, if, if you look at the struggle, for example, around suffrage, 
around who could vote and who couldn't vote. It took poor white people a long time, and actually, at their best, what we saw in, in things like the Chartist movement and various other grassroots movements was a coalition of people coming together and recognizing that their class interests were every bit as significant as a false consciousness of the epidermis that made poor white people at their worst believe that rich white people cared about them when they never have. When actually what they really had more in common with was a class-based struggle, which at the best is what the trade unions tried to do. But of course, what underpins that, oh, at least, uh, sorry, what undercuts that is the fact that, that the trade union movement itself was still racist. So even when they were talking about solidarity along the lines of class-based interests, and I remember talking to my dad about this, and my dad was a trade unionist. He was a member of the General and, Muni General and Municipal Workers Union, worked in a large, in a series of factories in Britain, was always a staunch trade unionist. And, and, and yet when he talked about racism on the shop floor, it was interesting that class solidarity only went so far with some of his white colleagues who would then turn around and say, but no, it's nothing personal, but like you're not really one of us though. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to continue on that theme in terms of our questions and then we'll move away a little bit afterwards. Uh, the question is, would you, and if so, where would you draw the line between proud to be white British and racism? Yeah, I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with being proud of any particular identity we have. I think the line always is, there's a difference between saying that there was a distinct history on a distinct experience of any particular group of people, which I think is undoubtedly true. The problem is, is when one then takes that particularity, but then overlays it with notions of superiority or alternatively notions of entitlement. So for example, I grew up in a poor inner city area of Bradford. Um, that in Bradford, that area of BD4 was one of the poorest of this in, in the city in terms of demographics. What was always interesting were the white communities there, who'd been poor long before we turned up, long before my parents came in 1957 and 1959 respectively, there were people who were endemically rooted in poverty in the city of Bradford, being exploited largely by people who are capitalists who owned mills and factories who didn't live in Bradford, like they moved out to Leeds or moved further to north to Harrogate and York in the posh white bits. So here they are, here they are, exploited by other white people who are the bosses who run factories that don't pay them enough for a living wage and poor housing. Our families turn up and we live in those same poor areas and all of a sudden they get into their head that it's our fault that they're poor. The poor long before we turned up. If those groups, no, not those groups, when those groups have a strong sense of their own identity to say, well, actually, like we're historically from Bradford or, or from whichever place, East End of London, and we have a distinctive narrative, I have no problem with that. I have no problem with, with, uh, with celebrating some of the tropes of Englishness, uh, St. George's Day, fine. As I said, I think the problem is, is when that then slips into notions of both superiority and notion of entitlement that somehow, that because we see ourselves as indigenous, like we have more rights than someone else, we expect more than someone else. 
that is where the problem then starts. Again, thank you for the answer. Now, you've been talking very much about, in a, in a kind of binary way, about rich and poor. So our next question addresses that. Um, Raj says, thank you for your challenging talk, Anthony. If the gospel of Jesus is good news to the poor, is it bad news to the rich? And what is that in the text, in the context of Brexit and pandemic? Is apology enough as a response from the church today? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a huge theological question because I think one of the things I would differentiate is that God loves everyone. I have no doubt about that, that God is love, that one of the definitions of God is love. But I also believe that God has a preferential option for those who are suffering and have been oppressed and are on the margin. So I think God has a particular love and care for the poor. Yes, God loves the rich, but I think that in all the different ways in which some of us are advantaged and entitled, parts of what we understand in terms of coming to faith and, uh, and having a responsible faith is also then about our commitment to those who are alongside us, like to love your neighbour as yourself and your neighbour who's is actually the whole of humanity with whom we are in relationship. Therefore, I think one of the critical challenges that has to come from those who have been economically advantaged by the whole legacy of colonialism and slavery and capitalism is what type of redress are we going to make in order to bring about a world of equity? And for me, I, and for me, I think one of the best gospel examples are, of that is Zacchaeus. That Zacchaeus is saved by faith. And yet he realizes that, that having been rich through exploitation of others, he gives back. And basically, and basically he gives back in order to repair and to be in better relationship with those he's exploited under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So what has happened too often with the church, and I, uh, I take from this, um, the great ideas of one of the great theologians of the last century, um, the German Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was at pains to remind Christians that there is such a thing as costly grace. Yes, grace is free, but it is costly. And part of the response to the gospel of those of us who claim to be saved by Jesus Christ is in what ways are we prepared to carry our cross in order to show ourselves in solidarity with those who are the least of these? And Bonhoeffer sometimes actually talks about, well, not sometimes, he talks about cheap grace, this sense of people, sense of gratitude to Christ, gives expression in just lip service only. So therefore, in order to answer the second bit of the question, apology is not enough. Actually, apology is but the start, and what we need is a form of restorative justice, and restorative justice then means both economic resources as well as other resources to make repair for those who have been disadvantaged and oppressed and marginalized by this long history of colonialism and exploitation. Okay, might come back to the topic about reparations, but at the moment, let's stick with another question. And I think it continues on um, from that apology and then what can the church do? So the question is, do you think the church 
still has a voice in the wider society of the United Kingdom? And if so, what can the churches actually do to challenge current political racist developments? Do church structures allow for such challenge? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think the church still has a very significant voice within the country, particularly the Church of England. And I say that because actually within our constitution and within in the fabric of our body politic, we still define ourselves as a Christian nation. The Queen is still the head of the established church. And we still, in the House of Lords, we still have Lords spiritual and, and Lords temple. And, and the Lords spiritual are those bishops that come from the established church. So there's still a place for the church. The church doesn't have the power it once had. And actually, actually, I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. I think all forms of theocracy are always problematic. When the church has its hand on the tiller, nothing good ever comes from that. So I think there's something about our marginalization that is not a bad thing in itself. Mm. Our structures don't help ourselves because I think one of the problems with all our churches, or I've said that to our churches, okay, so that's an exaggeration maybe, but most of our churches that we still work on the context of patronage. So we still tend to work on people who are at the apex of the church, see the people they want to promote and see in the people who are seen as trustworthy and the ones who are not going to rock the boat too much are the ones that will be given some form, some form of, sort of preferment in the church. So part of our own problem is that it's very hard to critique racism and injustice out there when you often perpetuate it within your own life of the church and its own structures and systems. And therefore, I think very quickly, there's two things the church needs to do. It needs to try and live out the gospel mandate itself preaches, which is about all of us being created in the image and likeness of God and all of us being equally important. Our church pays lip service to that because what we still do is that we still have class bias, racial bias, and certainly patriarchy and sexism in, infect the church. And therefore, what then stops our prophetic stance is that, of course, anyone who is not necessarily in favor of the church can point to us and say, but on what basis are you going to criticize anyone when you can't put your own life in order? Well, you know that that has been the charge that has been laid at the Church of England. And so I think they are still um, working very hard to uh, start to answer that. Um, and I will say no more. But I think the next question is, what advice, and, and uh, you may say none, but what advice would you give uh, to churches as they start to try to manage the covert racism which is within the church, and you've, and you've discussed that via the trope of patronage, but how that can work into a covert racism also. Yeah. I think one of the things I remember saying a long time ago, so I've been writing books for a long time that most people have happily ignored. Um, I did a book in 2003 called Nobodies to Somebodies. And within that book, I came up with this notion of a theology of good intentions. And I gave an exercise, which would take far too long to explain the exercise now, um, uh, around understanding of theology of good intentions. And part of that is a way of developing an analysis, at least to see yourself as you really are, rather than the form of deception that I think that the church often plays with. 
with itself. Let me give one quick example. That oftentimes when we open the scriptures as English and British Christians, and we read the scriptures, let's say, for example, like we read about Jesus' encounter with the Romans, and we read about Jesus and his ministry in Judea in, in, in the first century. A fundamental deception is that we identify with Jesus. The truth is that as the church in Britain on the back of empire, we are the Romans, we're not Jesus. We are implicated in the very thing that we are trying to critique, and we can't critique it because we haven't even come to the truth of our own complicity. If you talk to any counsellor who's doing any type of work with people who are struggling with various forms of addiction, the first thing you have to do is acknowledge that you have a problem. That's the first thing you've got to do. Then secondly, you then have to have a plan of action that says, well, how then do I stop doing the very thing that I'm addicted to? Which won't happen tomorrow. It won't happen the day after. It's a long-term thing, but it starts with an intention to say, I will no longer do this because it's destructive. And then thirdly, it is to recognize the fact that the fact that like you will never be cured, you will always be a former addict who is trying day by day to resist the temptation to go back to former destructive behaviors. At the moment, we still kid ourselves that because we carry the name the church and we have a history that somehow that like, we've been on the right side of righteousness and God is on our side. I, let me be very clear here. As clever as I think I am, I would never purport to speak for God. So I don't know what side God's on. But what I would say is that let's not assume that we're on the right side of the argument or even as a church on the right side of history. We have much to repent of, but it starts with acknowledging that there is a problem. And therefore, how then do we do an audit on our ways of being the church in order to be more cognizant of things that have remained too hidden and too tacit for too long. Thank you for that. I mean, often I, I always think of myself that, you know, the Lord's Prayer reminds me, as I say it every day, that I am a sinner and I'm constantly having to remember that and pray and ask for God's forgiveness every day. And I think it's something similar that you're saying. It's yeah. something you must do continually. Now, somebody's asked because often to be able to know where you are, to have insight, you have to have hindsight. And so someone's asked, would you say that the missions of the 17th and 18th century from Britain to other countries were in essence born of white exceptionalism? Absolutely, yeah. Um, now, I have many friends who are specialized in mission studies and they will always say to me, but Anthony, not every person involved in that was like, and that's true. There, of course, there were individual missionaries and there were particular groups who might have sort of tried to resist imperialism. And yes, I accept that. I accept that there are better examples in some places than in other places, absolutely. But however, what I would say is that the overall shape of mission history still assumed that God was on the side of the missionaries and that somehow like the place they were going to was a tabula rasa, it was this place of, of blankness in which God had never been. And somehow they were bringing God, even though we know that Christianity's its original iteration of the church is North Africa. That, that the first four centuries of the church is dominated by African thinkers. 
the most famous of them being St. Augustine. That was never part of the philosophical worldview of people went. So even though, and, and, and the classic example for me is India. So, so it is argued that uh, the Christianity gets to India circa AD 52 under St. Thomas. So it's long before it gets to Europe. The British did not go to India on the basis of saying, well, actually, let's seek out the Christianity that's already there, try and work in partnership with it, try and build it up. Let's find a way of finding some kind of harmony between our understanding of Christianity, which is Western and white and exceptionalist, and, and an indigenized contextual version of Christianity that already existed. They're not, not at all. They went there with the view that they took God, who was one of them, who they had contextualized in order to underpin and to justify both missionary expansion that went hand in hand with exploitation. So David Livingston, who was one of the great missionaries from the London Missionary Society, it was him, I think, in, I can't remember exact which year, so let me not quote the year, um, who said that the whole base of the British Empire was the three C's, commerce, civilization, and Christianity. So Christianity goes hand in hand with commerce and civilization. Okay, that might just um, ping into our next question that I want to put to you, where someone has asked, Chris has asked, how has the whiteness of the empire, the British Empire going out, made black people try to identify with whiteness in order to be acceptable? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, people write whole PhDs on this stuff in terms of the internalization of it. Actually, one of the best books that is just about come out actually is by a very good Anglican friend of mine, a guy called Carlton Turner. And his book is called, um, I think it's something like sort of resisting self-negation. And basically what he does is that his, his it's a very contextual study based upon the Bahamas. So he is a Bahamian Anglican and talks about the way in which like, the Anglican church and Christianity in the Bahamas was very much an attempt in many other places to try and replicate a static form of Englishness, a form of English Christianity as being the norm. And that has been internalized so much now over, over centuries that what you still have even within the minds of black Christians is a form of internalized self-negation, so self-denial of self, even within the concept of Christianity, which takes many different forms. So in the book for which my talk is drawn, called Theologizing Brexit, it's the second chapter, I look at why so many black people actually voted in favor of Brexit. That, that would have been a question to ask. So yes, do carry on. And I compare that a bit like sort of, uh, a bit like um, sort of Turkey's actually voting in favour of Christmas, you know? That essentially it's like so essentially like you're voting for a construct that does not include you and wants to penalise you, but you're voting for it. And you're voting for it because it's partly it's partly that way of trying to identify with Britishness in order to identify with the mother country that many people have been taught to internalize actually through Christianity. And, and, and as I said, I think it takes different forms. I think for Pentecostals, it takes a different form than if, for example, like you go to an Anglican or a Methodist or a Baptist church. But I still think it's a central plank 
in black Christianity that we need to deconstruct and try and eradicate. Well, I'm going to come to a question from one of our, our Pen black Pentecostal churches, Cherubin and Seraphim Church. And the question is, um, thank you for your powerful speech, Professor Reddy. Uh, former President Barack Obama spoke directly to young activists on the killing of George Floyd and the protests by Black Lives Matter and uh, that followed it. He called on them to make people in power uncomfortable. So the question is, how can we marginalize Christians from the global south, make the rich and powerful churches in the United Kingdom in particular uncomfortable and therefore to push for change? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that's a huge thing. I mean, I think one of the, I think one of the critical ways in which I think I think black Christianity is doing that is by simply living out the gospel in a prophetic fashion that embarrasses the status quo that claims to be of the same faith as us, but actually fails to live it out. And, I think, and so I think at its prophetic best, what black Christianity has done, so this is the flip side of what I was sort of saying in the previous question about the internalized oppression that we have. On its flip side, what we have at our best is a prophetic way of living out the gospel that embarrasses and shames and challenges, actually, um, those that are in, those that are, are in some position of power. Um, I think it is Valentino Alexander, this is one of the earliest womanists in Britain, who spoke about active, um, passive and active radicalism. So active radicalism is, is what we're seeing in terms of protest, the direct challenge to officials in power. But actually, don't underestimate passive radicalism. So passive radicalism is what a lot of ordinary black people of faith have done. So I think of someone like my mother. Um, she lived for 34 years in Britain. She was never a particularly political person, but I think in, in the way in which she lived her life, she often had a way of embarrassing white people because when they assumed that she would behave as badly as they would in terms of their behavior to her, and her response always was that the love of Christ means that I cannot behave like you. It would shame them. That's a classic line when Jesus says um, to turn your other cheek if they take your shirt, give them the, you know, you know, I mean, I can't quote it very well, but that actually is not a passive thing. That is, it is a form of resistance. It's a form of shamelessness. It's about saying, well, you know something, if, if you want to take this and take this as well, actually take it all. Go on, go on, just take it all. See how you feel about doing that. Now, part of the problem is that sometimes it then gets perceived as being weakness because we don't understand the prophetic tradition of Jesus. It is about, it's non-violent, but it still confronts. It confronts people with love. It confronts people and says, actually, we are not going to be silent when you're doing this. We will remind you that within our Judeo-Christian tradition, if you want to claim this nomenclature, this language of Christianity, then we will hold you to it and we will embarrass you about it. And I think that's what Black Christianity has done at its best. We've embarrassed people to say, if you want to use this language, then we demand that you show it in action. And if you don't, we will remind you that you haven't. You sound very much as if you would almost be quoting Martin Luther King Jr. 
as he responded to Malcolm X's charge that what he was doing was actually passive and inactive and not really, uh, really making a difference. And you've drawn us straight back to scriptures and to our Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you for that. Now, one of the ways in which the, the, the church was spread, as you said earlier, was through the missionaries. And the question is, should mission agencies still be sending out missionaries from the United Kingdom? Are these institutions relevant or are they redundant? I feel uh, slightly compromised by this because at my last job actually was actually working for a mission agency and many of my friends still work for them so I don't want to be overly harsh on them. I think I would say this, sending people to go and proselytize I have severe doubts about for two reasons. Firstly, that all the best evangelism is done by people in the culture who understand it, not from people outside. That's the first thing. So, so I have no problem with a certain sense of apologetics or wanting to talk about Jesus and talk about the good news. I understand that. However, it's best done by people within it. So after what Mr. Agency should be doing is giving resources to support people on the ground in a place to do it rather than parade people out across, that's the first thing. Secondly, it's this language of partnership that has always been difficult. That a lot of modern mission agencies now will talk about being in partners in mission, partnership in mission. And we'll talk about mission partners rather than missionaries. And I understand that except of course, if you have, if you have differences in power and differences in influence and most honestly differences in resources that makes partnership a bit of an illusion i think one of the great analogies i like about this actually comes from james cone the kind of founding father of black liberation theology who says well partnership doesn't tell you anything about the relationship between the people in partners in partnership a horse and a rider are in partnership but they're not equals and therefore i think one of the key things about mission agencies now and the work they're doing across the world is in what way are they still colluding with a political, not a political, sorry, um, with disparities in power? Because what we know, for example, is that if I come like to work with you and I have all the resources and you don't, and you know I have all the resources, I may say to you, Rosemary, I think that we should do ABC. I'm not going to force this upon you. I just think that we should do ABC. What do you think? Now, you know I have all the resources and you know that my resources could make your life a lot better. What are you going to say to me? You're going to say, well, that seems like a good idea, Anthony. Let's do that. You may not really think it's a good idea. In your head, actually, you may say, this is a ridiculous idea. What on earth is something you're talking about? But here's the fact, if you know I have the resources and you don't, you're more likely to collude with me, even though deep down you think something different. That is still one of the fundamental problems that mission agencies have in terms of trying to work in partnership, particularly with indigenous people in other cultures. Okay, thank you very much. I'm going to take us back. We've only got a few moments left, so we've got a couple of questions that I want okay. to um, uh, see if you can answer. So you talked a lot about the Church of England and about um, Anglicanism and um, David Forbes pointed out that the Church Times today says that only 12% of Britons identify themselves as Anglican and really the majority of those are in the 45 to 54 age group and not the young people. 
So is it your argument that English people are somehow unconsciously Anglican? Yeah, I think culturally, yes, we are. Um, now, some of that is about Anglican theology itself, because, you know, I mean, I'm far be for me to tell you about Anglican theology, because obviously, you know, a lot better than I do, but let's face it, that everyone in the parish who doesn't self-identify is, is notionally Anglican. Is that correct? You know, I mean, obviously, and you know. Those are the other are cure of souls, and they can, yeah. from any perspective of all yeah. faiths, none but we do have this idea that because the parish is in every, we have a parish in every community yeah. then that they're notionally under our care. Yeah. but i think that a lot of the cultural frameworks of britain are ones that are still embedded in anglicanism so for example when um that when harry got married sister megan that was a public civic event, but it was a public civic event that was actually within the rubric of the Church of England. And, 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 and all of us, particularly English people, sat down and watched it. So whether we bought into the Church of England or not, we still come within its orbit of cultural influence. So I think there's such, there's such a thing as a form of cultural Christianity. So what's interesting is that those on the political right who don't necessarily go to church, will always identify Britain as being a Christian country and they will identify the Church of England and the parish system and the monarch who's the head of the church and bishops who are in parliament as being part of the cultural fabric that makes Britain, or particularly England, England. Thank you, and I think coming up to the last question, um, so, um, Sarah wants to ask you, how might we begin to engage with those Christians who do not see the issue of, of race as having had any part in Brexit, but rather see it in terms of conservative versus liberal values, and as such, view it as an important victory in which conservative Christians, politicians, have finally taken a stand against perceived liberal incursions into British society. There's a big one to finish off. It is, and let me just then simply quote two words. Nigel and Farage. So for example, so his recent performance on GMTV of comparing the anti-racist protesters in Bristol in pulling down Colston's statue, he compared us to the Taliban. He compared us to some of the most egregious and dangerous, vicious people in the world, and he's one of the architects of Brexit. So what I would say to those people is, if you are comfortable with your faith, sitting in the same place as a man like that, then all I can say is that you definitely then need to rethink what your Christianity looks like, because that whatever one wants to say about liberal or conservative values, what we must be able to agree on is that the love of neighbour and the love of each other, all this creating the image and likeness of God equally is nothing that you can apply to someone who wants to use such offensive language about people whose only crime is simply fighting for justice and equity for all people. 
I think we're the, the war cry of fighting for justice and equity for all people is a good place to which um, we end uh, this uh, webinar. And I'm glad that you said that rather than ending on Nigel Farage and his horrendous quote with regard to what happened in Bristol. So may I say to everyone who has joined us this evening, thank you for what has been a very stimulating discussion on one of the key issues in our countries today. I'd like to thank Professor Reddy for leading our conversation. I'd like to thank everyone who uh, sent in questions. And I'm pleased, I apologize for those of you whose questions I wasn't able to put to Professor Reddy. I want to just um, remind you that there are five webinars on racial justice in Britain from the Churches Together in Britain and Ireland and the Baptist Union of Great Britain. And please check their websites for more information. And just to end, I want to just say thank you from me. I'm Reverend Dr. Rosemary Mallet, Archdeacon of Croydon. I wish you good evening. I encourage you to stay safe as we start to come out of the, the lockdown. And I look forward to being able to join with you at other webinars in the future, the first one being coming up on the 7th of July. Thank you all very much and have a very good evening. Thank you. The Truth to Power podcast is produced by Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. The music is by Nikolai Heidlis, used under a Creative Commons license.